Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by two guests, Dr. Bria Willingham and Dr. Aaron Corbett, who are here to talk to us about their work in higher education in prison and to introduce us to the new Journal of Higher Education in Prison, Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you, Christina. Good morning. Thanks for having us. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about your work. I shared for a moment off air that I'm really passionate about this work, and I'm so thankful that you accepted the invitation to come on. Before we jump into that, would you please uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Erin, uh, could we begin with you? Sure. This always seems to be the way Bria and I um, introduce <laughs> ourselves because we go alphabetically. Um, <laughs> so I am Dr. Erin Corbett. I run the second chance. Educational Alliance um, here in Connecticut, which is a program that offers credits toward a bachelor's in business administration in partnership with Southern New Hampshire University. I also run the Quinnipiac University Prison Project um, down in Hamden, Connecticut, which works with the folks who are incarcerated at York Correctional Institution, which is the state's only um, facility for a facility to house women. Um, and those who identify as women or femme and left uh, feminine of center. I also do some evaluation work for a funder uh, to look at state level higher ed and prison programs and optimizing delivery and increasing access. I also do federal and state level advocacy around access and success for justice impacted students. And I have two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Bria, would you please tell us a bit about yourself? Okay, I do not have any pets, um, but I do live vicariously through Erin's pet ownership. Um, I am the managing editor of the Journal of Higher Education in Prison, 
And I've been doing that for, I think, two years now. I'm losing track of time. Uh, (laughs) I am also an outgoing associate professor of criminal justice at SUNY Plattsburgh, moving to an associate professor of criminology position at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. So I am very excited about that move. Uh, Not so much about the logistics of the moving, though, (laughs) but my research uh, focuses in part on higher education in prison, particularly women's experiences with education uh, while incarcerated and after their incarceration. So I also do research on... Um, the impact of incarceration on Black families and the relationship particularly between uh, Black fathers and their children. And my work is centered, well, it is, um, I came into this work, I'll say, uh, because of my family's experiences with incarceration, particularly my brother who has been in prison for 30 years, wrongfully convicted of a murder, and my nephew who's also serving life sentences in the state of Pennsylvania. And, you know, my father, formerly incarcerated before he passed away, my sister, um, brother-in-law. So incarceration, unfortunately, runs deep in my family. And so the work that I do then is always centered on the experiences of the people and the families who are impacted by the criminal legal system. My, th- that was going to be my next question, which is what brought you both to this work? What inspired you into this work? Erin, um, would you like to share about that? Sure. So much like Bria, my entree into this space was and is and remains personal. Um, <clears throat> I have an uncle who is incarcerated in Florida. My nephew is currently incarcerated here in Connecticut. I had a cousin who went in at 16 did 12 years, came out, um, and due to the constraints of re-entry and kind of getting back into the swing of being in community, those pressures were a little bit too difficult for him, and he ultimately ended up taking his life. And so the the work that I do um, really stems from that point and stems from understanding the need to kind of touch as many people as possible so that they know there are people out there who are willing to help them, that there are these educational opportunities, et cetera. And that leads to my next question, really, which is um, what led to the founding of this journal and this program? Were you hearing from um, incarcerated students that they wanted um, a journal there, there are a couple of journals in this space, and yours is opening yet another space. Can you talk about how yours is different and where the call to create this came from? Well, the journal, Erin um, and I did not create this journal. The journal was created by uh, two other colleagues of ours in the higher education and prison field, doctors um, Mary Gould and Erin Castro. And they invited me to be the managing editor. So the vision of um, of JHEP, which is what we call it, is to uh, be a journal that 
defines the field of higher education in prison and um, have the the space for um, critical and um, how do I want to say this critical academic pieces about issues in higher education in prison. We wanted a um, a space, we want, excuse me, we wanted a venue for people who are not only doing research in this space, in this field, but also people who are experiencing higher education in prison as students. So, um, you know, and the ultimate goal, ironically, is for a journal of higher education in prison to not exist um, because the ultimate goal, obviously, as abolitionists, is to not have this system exist as it does. So we 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 often joke, the editors and I, um, we often joke that we are working to outdo ourselves. <laughs> you know, um, we are working to um, we are working to not have to have a journal for higher education in prison. And there's a an impressive masshead of uh, advisors and, and members of your editorial board, um, scholars from across the United States, uh, representing a number of uh, wonderful institutions. And there's a very firm, clear statement as well um, in that section that says the editorial board includes scholars and researchers who are currently and formerly incarcerated. There's also a a link you can click if you want to become involved. So how did the original call go out and you, you amass this, this group of, of scholars? Um, well, the original call, uh, you mean for the editorial board or? Yeah. You, you started creating this in, in 2019. Is that right? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Aaron, yeah. Uh, so Aaron, Aaron Cor- not Aaron, Aaron Castro and Mary uh-huh, Gould. The other EC. I know, right? <laughs> it's, um, they started it in 2019. I came aboard in 2020. So I was not the one who did the original, uh, you know, call or whatever for the, um, for the journal itself. So they, they created the journal. I came on in 2020, as I said, um, but I originally was asked to, I originally was invited to be an editorial board member. And then I was invited to be uh, the managing editor. So the vision though of amassing the, the editorial board was to have a varied representation of the higher education and prison field. So that includes people who are formerly incarcerated, um, that includes people who are inside students, that includes people who are researchers and more traditional academics, that also includes people uh, like myself who are, you know, activist academics. So we wanted to have a varied editorial board because too often what happens is, you know, you have people who are doing research about issues related to prison in particular, or you know, higher education in prison in particular, or the criminal legal system as a whole. 
and they are not including the people who are directly impacted. And you are doing an, a gross disservice to the field and to your work if you are not including the voices of people who are directly impacted. Um, because we often say this is, you know, they are rather um, the subject matter experts as well. So again, so that's what we wanted for the journal. That is still our goal for the journal. Um and, you know, again, we are trying to have the journal um, define the field, if you will, uh, because what we what I am learning and I'm not going to speak for it for Mary and Aaron on this. But what I am learning and what I am seeing is that there are many people in the higher education and prison field who um, are very territorial and have. Uh, an idea of what higher education in prison is have all have all of these thoughts about it, but when they put those thoughts on paper, they don't translate well. So um, again, with the journal too, we we are establishing a standard. We um, are establishing some integrity with the the research that is coming out of this field. We are not a catch all journal where oh okay so I'm in prison and I'm gonna I'm gonna write a poem and just send it to this journal to to get it published. Oh okay so this is a journal about higher education in prison. So I'm just going to write something about prison and throw it to this journal and it'll get published. That's not what we're doing at all. So um, we are just uh, coming up on our um, our second volume, which will be published in the fall semester. Uh, and so we're, you know, we're learning as we're going and it is, um, it, yeah, it has been a, a learning experience. I'll just leave it at that. And you say those things uh, in the introduction um, to the to volume one. It says starting a journal for a field you wish did not exist and working actively to end is a strange feeling. And it also goes on to say the places in which we work, prisons, jails, and detention centers for adults and children are racist and inhumane and should not exist. You also talk about... Um, a lot of the major questions that um, you all have working in this field um, about barriers, about what future should be worked towards, um, the complexity of working towards the uh, betterment of a field that you ultimately want to dismantle because you want the system in which you have to teach it to just be dismantled as well. The journal seems to be a place where a lot of these very, very difficult things are going to be looked at from a number of points of view as you go along. Yes, it is. It is. Um, and I don't know, Erin, I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking. So if you want to, if you want to jump in, feel free to as well. Um, but I, you know, this... When I when I look at the field, that you know, there are just so many. There's just so much wrong with it. Um, and as two black women, Erin Corbett and I, um, working in this space, you know, we 
we come up uh, uh, against a lot of what's wrong with this field. And it's, you know, one journal is not going to fix it all. I just want to make that clear. But in addition to the journal, um, Aaron and I, we uh, created along with uh, another colleague of our doc- of ours, Dr. Bahia Muhammad, created the Jami Sisterhood um, around the time, well, about a year after the journal um, was created. And we did that in an attempt to, uh, well, not in an attempt because we are doing it. We created this journal, I mean, excuse me, uh, the Jami Sisterhood to uh, to counter the narrative that the higher education in, in prison field is one that is uh, uh, led by white women. Um, this field is overwhelmingly white um, and overwhelmingly led by white women. And they, but that's not the accurate picture of what this field is because there are many black women who have been doing the work in this field as well. And so that's why we created the Jami Sisterhood to represent the Black women who are doing the work, but who are often not invited to the table. And so we said, you know, Nick's your table. We're creating our own table and we are building our own chairs and we are creating our own space for Black women who are doing this work. So Erin, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about Jami. Yeah. So one of our initiatives is Project Freedom, and it is an initiative specifically designed to increase the representation of Black and brown folks in this field as instructors, as program administrators, and obviously, and most importantly, as students. And so to do so, We are working with HBCUs and HSIs to really get them motivated to get their programs up and running, get them inside the facilities, because what's been happening for so long is that we've been begging these white institutions, predominantly white institutions, to increase their diversity numbers, right? So we've been focusing on what is pretty surface compositional diversity, and we have not paid attention to the more systemic ways that Black people are completely erased and dismissed from this field unless they are the students um, who also often get tokenized. And so, you know, Project Freedom is is an opportunity for us, so Bria Bahia and I, to work very closely with these institutions that historically are designed to provide the kinds of opportunities that incarcerated students are needing. They are designed with the community feel, with the kind of grassroots level um, hustle spirit that our students, um, the students that we work with, respond to, relate to, respect in many ways. And so it's been super successful. We were just, I mean, Bria was just in um, Atlanta at Morehouse, Another colleague, one of our subject matter experts, Karanda Porter, who was at the Tennessee Higher Ed Initiative, she and I were in Mississippi a few weeks ago working with Mississippi Valley State University, and they are one of the most on-point programs I have seen in this field in my time in it. Um, 
And that's because they are led by a Black woman who is former law enforcement and therefore is able to have the kinds of conversations she needs to have to get the programs moving. She also has the support of senior leadership, most specifically the president, who is a Black man, and the provost, who is a Black woman, um, and who is a very accomplished Black woman at that and so the conversations, again, that need to happen on the campus so that the campus is bought in are being had in ways that um, that center, that foreground community, family, communal responsibility, et cetera. Mm-hmm. White folks and white orgs just can't <clears throat> do that. Right. Exactly. Um, and, you know, what's been interesting about, <laughs> about us doing the work when we created Jami in, in 20, in spring of 20, right when we were all quarantined, um, we did uh, a series of six different webinars. And so from, from May through, I believe either November or December, we did six different uh at least six different webinars looking at different issues uh, related to higher education in prison. And so for us, though, it's important to say that when we talk about higher education in prison, we are not just talking about classrooms and syllabi and textbooks and content and curriculum. We are talking about, you know, what higher education in prison really represents outside of the classroom, you know, the social justice issues, the um, um, the racism um, that and, and sexism that and other oppressions <laughs> that exist within the criminal legal system. So, you know, for us, it's not just about the delivering of the education in the traditional sense, but it's also about, you know, what Black women have to go through just to even get to do the bare minimum of <laughs> of, of teaching, of course. You know, it is about the um, the baggage that we that we carry, you know, doing this work, like Aaron and I said in our introductions, we, you know, our families are directly impacted by incarceration. So what does that mean for us as Black women with incarcerated relatives? That means that we enter into these spaces, into these carceral spaces, carrying that emotional baggage um, and understanding that when we go into these carceral spaces, that, you know, these spaces are how do I characterize it, Erin? I say these spaces are um, created for us because we are Black women. You know, we we are not supposed to be Black women who are educated. How dare us? We're not supposed to be Black women with doctorates. How dare us? And so we are coming into a space that was created for our Black bodies, but we are coming in to deliver education, to liberate minds. What? So all of that is there's there's so much more nuance to it. There are so many layers um, that we that we peel and unpack, and that is something that white women do not do because they don't have to do that because of the privilege that's attached to their white skin. So for us, you know, this is not a game. This, this is stuff that we live. Um, this, this is the, the issues that we grapple with 
every single day of our lives as black women, not only in this space, but black women in this country. Yeah, I'm going to just co-sign basically all of that. <laughs> um, not going to repeat it. I think I just gave a recap of the of what I said in our first <laughs> webinar. <laughs> our 12-hour like, webinar. Um, yeah, I mean, the you know, what I do want to emphasize, there are a couple of things I want to emphasize. One, the fact that these buildings were made for us. They were made for our bodies. They were made, right, because Foucault talks about docile bodies, and that's how corrections, law enforcement, punishment, discipline. That's how they look at the people who are inside of these institutions as docile bodies. Um, And so they are certainly made for us, our physical beings, but these are institutions that will never be able to hold our spirit, will never be able to hold our strength, will never be able to hold our creativity. And that's what we're able to bring into the space. I can, I've been fortunate that I've been able to create um, relationships with students and, and have a rapport with students that other instructors can't have because a lot of the students in my program relates to me as a Black person. And so, you know, it's the difference between being able to kind of joke, play the dozens, whatever you want to call it, and have that be understood and respected and, you know, a good part, a good fun time of the classroom experience where another instructor, a white instructor, like, mm, <laughs> you about right. to do some trouble <laughs> open your mouth a little too reckless. Yes. And so- Again, I think it speaks to this broader sense of like how black people in this like almost philosophical collective unconscious way have this connectivity that we can leverage. And that's, you know, black women, but also black men that we can leverage in the classroom in that space in a way that white instructors cannot. Right. Exactly. You both spoke about, um, having very personal knowledge of the work that you do and going into these spaces and then getting to go home. Can you talk about the kind of support it takes for you to be able to do this work? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I... (sighs) So it it takes a huge Mm -hmm. amount of support to to do this work. Like I just got off probation. um, And so there's a, there's a way that I just enter correctional spaces as someone who has been a defendant, but who has not been incarcerated. That always just kind of triggers me when I walk into the space. Every time I leave a correctional facility, I can't just drive off. I have to sit and just kind of exhale. I probably call Bria or my friend Kaya in Rhode Island. Like I call people who have taught inside, who have family members who are incarcerated, who are in this space some kind of way, because you have to let that stuff out. Otherwise, it will build and build and build and build. And then you're no good to anyone because you're burnt out. You haven't done any self-care. Um you know, but it's it's difficult because as you're trying to do your own self-care, you are realizing that the people that you are teaching may not have that opportunity to do self-care. And so like you're tripping with yourself because you're like, ugh, you know, I need to 
go get a massage or just drink some coffee or I just need to do something to relax. But our students don't necessarily have that opportunity. So you feel guilty and you're like, well, maybe I'll just do some work because, you know, I don't deserve to have a good time in my life. But it's your friends and your networks that are like, nope, nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to right. take care of yourself. <laughs> Because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't teach. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't administer this program. You're right. no good to anyone if you are not being good to yourself. Right. Um, and for me, it is it's red wine. You know that's <laughs> I I I I like red wine. Um that's one of the ways that I unwind. Um, but I do remember um, many years ago when I was doing a writing workshop at um, a, a women's facility in New York State. And it was at least an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes from where I lived at that time. Oh, and I just remember uh, feeling so heavy whenever I would leave the facility and, you know, trying to shake it off, you know, during the drive. And then the moment that I I got home, I would have to take a shower because I needed to cleanse, not because the experience with the women wasn't good because it was, but it it was just, you know, I, I really needed the, the cleanse for, um, you know, for the, both literally and figuratively to wash away everything bad that the prison represented. And for me, because, you know, I have so many people inside who I'm related to that, um, you know, I, I felt myself being extra heavy and, and, and bringing home a lot. So it, that was one of the ways that I did it. Um, and, you know, Jami, another reason why it exists, and Jami is the Swahili word for community. So it's to create that community for Black women who need that release. When we did our first webinar um, in May of 20, and I can't believe it's about to be two years, um, two year anniversary, that so many of the women said, oh my gosh, I didn't know I needed this. Or, oh my gosh, I knew I needed this, but I didn't know how much I needed it. And so um, it, you know, it, it helps. So whether, whether it is, you know, uh, jumping on a call with Aaron and just venting or pouring a glass of wine or two and just exhaling, you know, those are the things that I do. And I think it's important for everyone to find their way to, um, to let it go because it, it, like Aaron said, if you let it build, then you're going to come to this breaking point and it's not going to be pretty because I experienced that a couple years ago. Uh, but fortunately therapy has been, has been doing wonders for myself, but is it whatever the, whatever the outlet is, it's important to do it in this work. It sounds like a certain amount of self-care is actually aftercare if you don't have community and uh, you don't have institutional support and you don't have the funding. Um, do you want to talk more about any of those things? 
Uh, Aaron can talk about funding. (laughs) (laughs) Or rather, I can't. Or lack Uh, thereof. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the funding scene in this space is, I would argue, the same kind of funding scene that we see in other spaces where the schools and programs that already, Caesar's already just like, I'm anti all of this. where the schools and the programs that already have like endless amounts of resources simply continue to get more of those resources and the smaller programs, you know, I run a smaller program. Um, if it's not, you know, directly like attached to a university or, you know, hasn't, um, uh, been in like a high visibility level for an extended period of time, then people just sort of overlook us. Um, the perfect example um, was with Project Freedom with Jami. We shopped it around to a number of funders who fund in this space and who claim really loudly that they are about equity and racial and ethnic diversity and getting more people of color, more BIPOC people. They love to say BIPOC, getting more BIPOC people in the space. And then they give money to white organizations and institutions and programs to try and find the one or two colored folks that they'll bring on board um, to, to participate in their programs. So when we were passing around a proposal that was like, we are going to increase the number of black and brown people by going to black and brown institutions to the black and brown people, they were like, oh, um, we don't, uh, this doesn't. It's too black and brown. It's too black and brown. This this doesn't really align (laughs) with our funding priority. We're going to have to get back to you as we change out. We need to figure out, we're deciding what our new funding priorities are and we'll get back to you. And then we see like the infrastructure of our program being, uh, uh, given to other people and other organizations are then doing the work of racial and ethnic diversity. Work. But they're really not. <laughs> but they're, not. <laughs> but so, they're really not. You know, so again, it's just, you know, until um, we get folks in funding positions that understand the amount of work that a lot of the smaller programs do to keep things moving, we're, we're going to continue to only hear about the same three programs over and over and over again. Like community colleges have carried the weight of this work since 1972, when the Basic Education Opportunity Grant, which was the Pell Grant before it was first named Pell, they've been carrying this load since then. They've been carrying the load throughout the time that programs were banned if they had the money and capacity to do so. And with Second Chance Pell, they are the majority of institutions that are offering programs to people who are incarcerated, but they consistently are not the ones you hear about. You hear about the big universities that already have the visibility that they need for their programs to run. Right. You hear about BARD all the time. Everyone thinks BARD is like the only program that exists and the only program that can do higher education in prison. And no no true shade to BARD, but you know, I'm just saying what it is. They are not the only players in the game. And um it's, it's always frustrating that whenever we go somewhere and we're speaking, whether we're together or, or you know, doing separate speaking events, everyone always asks, well, what about BARD? What, what about BARD? 
Bard is not it. Bard is not the only player in this um, in the higher education and, and prison field. So, but Bard is the one that consistently gets the money because they're Bard. Um, but fortunately for us, Laughing Goal took a chance and funded us. So we got the the initial fifty thousand um, dollar grant, and then what was the second one, Erin? The three year one. Yes, yeah, so um, it's the it's sixty thousand a year for three years. Yeah, so thank so big shout out to to Laughing Golf. Thank you. We always you know big up, big up, yeah. up. <laughs> we always have to make sure that we recognize that because um, you know they they saw our potential and they and they know how dedicated we are to this work and and um, how important. Uh, we are in this space as Black women. And interestingly enough, when we first announced Project Freedom, we got some pushback <laughs> from some white women in the field, you know, who were, you know, clutching their their fake pearls because um, they felt as though we were trampling on their backyard. So, you know. And this conversation about funding takes us back to earlier in the conversation where you talked about the white visibility in this field and the white leadership in this field. If we follow the money trail, we can see that there's a, there's a almost closed loop there. Mm-hmm. You Correct. see it too. You see it too. Yep. Exactly. And so that, that is our, that is our first, one of our biggest frustrations <laughs> in this space. Right. You've made your journal open access. It's available online. Mm-hmm. Usually open access is an expensive way to make something available for free. Um, can you talk about uh, the open access decision? And if you want to talk about funding concerns, I know there are other journals who would like to be open access and can't figure out the uh, the brick road forward to lay for themselves to do that. Um I can't talk a, a lot about it because they, again, uh, Mary Gold and uh, Aaron Castro laid all of that groundwork prior to me coming on. But um, so I can't talk about like the funding or how much it costs or whatever. But the the uh, the rationale behind it is we want everything about this journal to be open and we want want it to be easily accessible, it, particularly and especially because um, we are also working with um, you know uh, students who are in prison. So uh, and we are, we you know we know just in the field that access is often a huge issue. Um, so that's that's the main rationale behind it. And even through our um, review review process, authors can uh, have the option. Well, they have the option to have their articles reviewed unmasked or masked. So um, we want complete transparency in the entire process. We want complete transparency in, in the access to the journal because we, we have nothing to hide. So that is, that is the rationale behind it. I can't talk about the, the financial stuff. 
I like I like how you phrased that. I was when you were saying nothing to hide, and mm-hmm. I was thinking and everything to amplify. Yeah, there you go. Yes, I like that. Yes. I have so many questions left, and I know we're running short of time, and I want to make sure you both have an opportunity to use this platform today to talk about the things that you hope most to get across. Um, I did want to ask, what is it's I. I wrote it as what's your favorite <clears throat> favorite part of this job and it I don't know that that's the right wording. I know that this is such deeply important work to you. I guess maybe the question is what keeps you going? I mean, for me it's always the students. Um what I've realized about my life is that every professional endeavor I've had, the ones where I am the least happy is the one where I am furthest away from students. Um And so to the extent that I am able to remain kind of in, in somebody's classroom somewhere, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's, that's what keeps me going. I mean, you know, my, one of my aunts was an educator in Brooklyn for over 25 years, his two master's degrees, like education is just a part of who I am. It's part of my DNA. And so when I'm teaching or when I'm learning that is when I am most engaged and most fulfilled and most wanting to do the most with the least. (laughs) I'm always doing the most. Um, You know, and just the memory of my, you know, my little cousin, Antonio, you know, I talk to him sometimes and, and I'm sure he would be proud and, and all of that. Um, But I just want to make sure that, that I'm, you know, paying respects to his, to his memory and to the life that he lived through this work. Yeah. I think what keeps me going is my brother. Um, he, like, like I said in the beginning, got <laughs> 30 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And oh, I, I cannot even begin to imagine what he experiences on a day-to-day basis, even though we talk about it, but it's still, you know, can't imagine it. And so on those days when I'm like, oh, this is just like, why am I even doing this? I don't, you know, I just don't have the energy for it today. I don't, you know, whatever I'm going through and and I'm just like, <laughs> forget it. I'm just not even going to do this anymore. And then I, I look at my brother's picture and I'm like, yes, you are. Right. Because he he, you know, always tells me, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing. It gives me hope. It gives all of us hope up in here. Uh, So, you know, there's that's why it is my brother. Always, always in in, in the stuff in the in the classes that I teach. um, The the other research that I do outside of higher education in prison. uh, It's always he's always on the back of my mind. Yes. There's an article in the first um, volume of the journal about how human connection is considered contraband. Do you both want to speak to that for a few minutes? Yeah. I mean, it's um, like when you think uh, from the perspective, if you look philosophically at um, Goffman's idea of the total institution Um, part of what makes the total institution effective. And it's important to note that not only prisons, not only are prisons total institutions, but 
colleges and universities are also determined to be total institutions. So in the ways that people think that higher ed institutions and prisons are on these opposite ends of the continuum, I'm like, no, no, girl, y'all are on the same end. Right. <laughs> um, so that's sort of uh, one. But in, um, in sort of the carceral space, the carceral total institution, the way that conformity and adherence to authority is established is through the disruption of personal bonds. It's about pitting people against each other and making them not trust each other and putting them in situations and spaces where the culture that is perpetuated is one of distrust, lack of transparency, lack of vulnerability, et cetera, et cetera. And so that is part of how prisons do the work that they do. So when volunteers come in, who are not part of that cultural structure, our tendency as human beings is to establish that kind of connection. But the prison will often, and I would say always has these very kind of arbitrary guidelines about what quote unquote undue familiarity is. So there are some agencies that say you can't shake your students' hands. There are some um, institutions that say if you call a student by their first name, then that's undue familiarity. You have to call them by their last name all the time. When that is what happens inside of the carceral space anyway, so they are expecting you as the instructor to be a tentacle of the carceral space, even though you are part of the higher ed institution. And so there is certainly something to be said for that um, in terms of connection being contraband. But being in educa- being an educator and being in education means that the relationship that you establish with students is one that you are then able to leverage to engage students to give 100% at all times. And so there's got to be some nuance on the part, I think, of corrections to get a better sense of like what healthy relationships look like in a classroom um, and making allowances for those. Yeah. And just going off of that, uh, human, human connection is not just the physical touching. And so we as educators, when we go into that space, and especially as Black women, uh, and particularly when um, our classes are full of predominantly Black and brown bodies, we're able to make that connection without even touching. And there is no way to... Um, to label that as contraband is because that is a, that is on a spiritual level that no one else would be able to, to do, I'll just say. Um, Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. I know we're running out of time. So I'd like to ask you as my final question, what do you both hope this episode sparks for listeners? Hmm. I I wanted to spark um, maybe a little bit of outrage. Um, outrage is always for me is a good thing <laughs> because it it can lead to change. I want people to want to learn more about higher education in prison and what it really is. I want people to check out the Jami Sisterhood on Twitter and at, hey. yeah, and at our website, jamisisterhood.com. Um, uh, and, and I just want people to really understand that education 
is not reserved for the privileged folk in these Ivy League institutions. Uh, education is not reserved for uh, for privileged people. Privilege meaning people who have the privilege of not being incarcerated. Um, you know, higher education is not just reserved for people in the alleged free world, but that higher education is is a right, and it is one that should not be taken away from people just because they are in prison. Ditto. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Bria Willingham and Dr. Aaron Corbett, telling us about your work in higher education in prison and about the Jami Sisterhood and about the newly launched Journal of Higher Education in Prison. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again. <laughs>